Chapter Twenty of The Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by HearHis.com. The Witch of Salem by John R. Musick. Chapter Twenty. Conclusion. How calm, how beautiful comes on the steely hour when storms are gone, when warring winds have died away, and clouds beneath the glancing ray melt off and leave the land and sea, sleeping in bright tranquillity, fresh as if day again were born, again upon the lap of morn. More. In his dungeon cell, Charles Stevens learned that the veil of mystery which, like a threatening cloud, had enshrouded the life of Cora Waters was lifted, and the sunlight, for the first time, streamed upon her soul. She knew a mother's love, her parents, estranged since her infancy, were again united. Such incidents are told in song and story, but are seldom known in reality. Charles heard the story in all its details related by his mother on one of her visits. He also learned that the colony of Virginia, by royal sanction, had granted a pardon to Mr. George Waters for the, quote, death of one James Martin, late overseer to Thomas Hull. "'I am glad they are happy, mother,' the unhappy prisoner said." "'It is the reward which in the end awaits the just,' she said. "'They have forgotten me. "'Charles, why say you that? "'Had not Cora Waters forgotten me? "'Surely she would have visited me while sick and in prison.' "'They have just heard of it,' she answered. "'Just heard of it?' he repeated, amazed. "'I have lain here pining in this dungeon for three long weeks.' And you tell me, but they have just heard of it? I am assured they have. Mother, that seems impossible. Why, I thought all the world knew it. But few know of it, my son. It seems to be the scheme of the prosecutors to keep the matter secret. You have not written. You have sent no message. No, mother. Then pray. How could they learn of it, save by the merest accident? A passing stranger bore the news. Charles Stevens heaved a sigh. Perhaps tis so. But it would seem that my groans and sighs must be heard round the world. Yet neither Cora Waters nor Adelpha Leiser, whose side I stood a comforter in the dark hours of trouble, has seen fit to offer me one word of consolation. I trow, Charles, that Adelpha knows it not. Cora is coming. Who hath told you? A friend from Boston brings information that the Waters brothers, with the newly found wife and mother of Cora, are coming to Salem to do all in their power to aid you. Charles sadly shook his head and said, My poor friends can do nothing for me. They can at least offer you consolation and comfort. Yes, but what more? That is much true, and I appreciate it. I could not think that Cora would forget me. 
neither would Aldalfa, if she knew. His mother, after waiting some time for her son to resume, at last said, Charles, if your choice were left to you, which of the two, Aldalfa or Cora, would you wed? Charles, smiling, answered, Mother, it is not for one living within the shadow of the scaffold to think of marriage. Charles, can you really think your case so serious? I do, mother. I know it. Oh, Charles, surely they will not condemn you. They have no proof. You are innocent. I am innocent, mother. But that is no reason that evidence will not be produced against me. Yet it will be false. False, of course. Yet many have been hung on testimony as false as Satan himself. Oh, Charles, what shall we do? Trust in the Lord, mother. When all earthly help is gone, we can only look to God for aid. I have prayed to him that, if it be his will, this cup might pass. Yet his will, not mine, be done. If I must die a martyr to that woman's falsehood, I pray he may give me sufficient strength to endure the trial. The mother fell on the neck of her son, crying, You shall not die. Oh, my son, my son! Charles comforted his mother as well as he could, and she took her leave. All was dark and gloomy. He knew that malice and hatred pursued him, caught his throat, and would not let go its hold until it dragged him to death. He was buried in the midst of his gloomy reflections when the door of his cell opened, and a jailer, entering, said, Another visitor for you, Charles Stevens. Another visitor? Who can it be? he asked. It is I. And Samuel Parris entered. For a moment Charles Stevens was struck dumb at the audacity of the pastor of Salem in venturing to enter the cell of one whom he had wronged. Though the power of Mr. Parris was on the wane, it was not wholly gone. He took advantage of the confusion of Charles Stevens to signal the jailer to leave them, and he went out, closing the iron door behind him. Folding his arms on his breast, Paris gazed at the prisoner. Charles Stevens, about whose waist was a thick belt of leather, fastened by a chain to the wall, sat on a miserable cot, his face bowed in his hands. He did not look up at the white, cadaverous face and the great blazing orbs which gleamed with fury upon him, although he knew full well that those eyes were on him. Jaws, the deep, sepulchral voice at last spoke. Well, look up. With a sigh, the young prisoner raised his head. Every movement he made was accompanied by the rattling of chains. Charles, you will not believe me when I tell you I am sorry for this. No, I will not. Nevertheless, I am. Charles Stevens, you do not know me. The world misjudges me, and all future generations will do the same. Some things which I have done may seem harsh, yet... I was commanded of heaven to do them. Samuel Paris, 
if you have come to upbraid me, to gloat over my captivity and add to my misery, do so. I am powerless and cannot resist you, but I do entreat you not to blaspheme your maker. The great eyes of Paris gleamed with sullen fire. His thin lips parted. His breath came short and quick, and for a few moments he was unable to answer. At last, becoming calmer, he said in his deep sepulchre voice, Jaws, do you not like me? I confess it. I have rebuked you for your sinful associations, and the wicked dislike rebuke. The devil said to the Savior, when he would cast them out, Let us alone! We have naught to do with thee. Everywhere in this life the sinner says, Leave me alone. Yet it is my calling to go forth and snatch brands from the burning. Charles, why will you not denounce the child of that player? She hath done no wrong. Do you love her? That is a question you have no right to ask or expect me to answer. I have read it in your heart. I have no answer. What have you to say in extenuation of your conduct hitherto? Nothing. Why did you return to Salem? It is my home. Did you not anticipate this accusation? No. What do you expect now? Death. Have you no hope of escaping? None. But you seem calm and collected. Why should I not? Most men fear death. True. And do not you? I would rather live. What would you consent to do to save your life? Nothing dishonorable. What I am about to propose is by no means dishonorable, but honorable and fair in every particular. Proceed. You are charged with the death of Samuel Williams. Whether you be guilty or not, it is quite clear that Williams is dead. Now, it is the duty of someone to care for the widow. She is young. Hold, Mr. Paris! If you are going to propose that I shall wed Sarah Williams, spare your words. I will not. Charles Stevens, do you seek death? None should wed where the heart is not. That bold, unscrupulous woman has already won my contempt. Have a care. Go tell her that Charles Stevens prefers death on the gibbet to becoming her husband. Mr. Paris gazed on the helpless prisoner for a few minutes. His thin lips curled with a sneering smile. Charles Stevens, he said in low, measured tones, you are a fool. Do you know what it is to die? Have you counted the cost of a leap in the dark? No sane man courts death. Yet, to the Christian who hath kept God's commands, the monster is robbed of half its terrors. God has wisely constituted us so that we dread death. If we did not, we would not be willing to endure the misfortunes, disappointments, and ills which afflict us from the cradle to the grave. But the Christian can say, Welcome to death, in preference to dishonor. I thank my God, Samuel Paris, that 
I can, with the prophets of old, say, O oh, grave, where is thy victory? Charles Stevens, have you ever thought that, after all, this too may be a delusion, that the Bible may be only the uninspired works of man, and that there may be no beyond, no God, save nature? So, you have turned atheist, cried Charles. Perhaps you have been one all along. Charles Stevens, one cannot help their doubts. One need not be a hypocrite, Mr. Paris. One can even drive doubts away. The true Christian never doubts and never fears. Pray for faith. Have faith in your prayers. Believe and ask God to help your unbelief and doubts will disappear. Charles, you are too young, too wise to die. Accept Sarah Williams and live. Never! Away, hypocrite, schemer! Begone! The pastor, quite humbled, turned and went from the prison. There was a malignant gleam in his great wicked eyes, which boded the unfortunate prisoner no good. For several weeks longer, Charles Stephen languished in prison. Cora, her father and mother, came to Salem and visited him. When Cora Waters gazed on the young man, from whom she had parted a few weeks before in the full vigor of his young life and strength, and saw him emaciated, weak and pale, so that she scarcely knew him, she broke down and wept. The two were left alone in the cell. Then Charles told her how uncertain were his chances of life and how impending his prospects of death. He could not quit this life without telling her that he loved her and that he wished to live to make her his wife. Though that pleasure was forever denied him, it would make his last days more agreeable to know that his love was returned. What answer could she make? She, whose fondest hope this had been, said nothing, but with heart overflowing, she threw her arms about the prisoner and burst into tears. Had she won him only to lose him? Was he to be snatched from her side at the very moment that she found him her own? No, 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 they shall not, they shall not, she sobbed. From that day, Cora shared the imprisonment of her lover, so far as the jailer would permit. She added to his comfort and assured him that her undying love would follow him to the grave. Their hopes rose and sank as the day of the trial drew near. The fatal day came at last, and Charles was arraigned before the court of Oyer and Terminer on charge of the murder of one Samuel Williams. He pleaded not guilty and made every preparation for defense. It was like fighting a mask battery for they knew not what the evidence would be against him. The trial opened, and Sarah Williams, to make the scene more effective, came dressed in black and looking very pale. She was called to the stand, and, between tears and sobs, told her sad story of how her loving husband had one day quarreled with the defendant, and the latter had threatened him. Was anyone else present? Yes. John Bly and Mr. Lowder were both present when he threatened to kill her husband. Charles Stevens remembered having a slight altercation when he was quite a boy with Mr. Williams, 
but it was such a trivial matter that he had forgotten it till now. Then she told that her loving husband feared he would be slain by Charles Stevens, and that he went away to New York City on a voyage, and that the same day Charles Stevens had come to her house and asked her whither her husband had gone, and she had every evidence to believe he went after him. There were other witnesses who swore that about this time Charles Stevens left the town and was gone away for some time. Charles remembered that on that occasion he had taken a journey to Rhode Island. Then came two strangers, evidently seafaring men of the lowest order. They were brutal, unscrupulous, and had lived the lives of buccaneers, as was afterward proved. Both swore that they knew the defendant, although he had never seen either before. They saw the defendant slay Samuel Williams on Long Island, near the beach, and both gave a graphic account of his dragging the body along the sand and hurling it into the water where the tide bore it away. Their statements were corroborative. Bly and Louder were next produced, who gave evidence that the defendant had confessed to them that he had slain Samuel Williams, and that defendant was greatly enamored of the murdered man's wife. Mr. Paris and others testified to having seen him in the company of Sarah Williams on diverse of times, and that he had shown great fondness for her. "'What have you to say to this evidence?' asked the Chief Justice to the prisoner. "'I can only say they are all grievous liars.' The jury will take notice how the defendant assaults men of unquestioned character. Even the minister is assailed. There was a murmur of discontent in which even some of the jury joined. Judges, jury, and prosecutors were all against Charles, and his trial must result in conviction. The people were excited at the dastardly murder, and began to complain at the delay in the trial, which wore tediously on day after day for nearly a week. At last the evidence was all in, and the last argument made. There was everything against the prisoner. The prosecution had been so skillfully planned and executed that there could be but one result. Charles Stevens was very calm, while Cora was carried away in a fainting condition. Mr. Waters went to the prisoner to speak with him. Charles' face was white as death, but his mind was clear and showed not the least agitation. "'There can be but one result,' the prisoner said. "'An acquittal is impossible. Be good to Cora and Mother, and keep them both away on that day. It would be too much for them. They would not forget it to their dying hour.' Mr. Waters assured him that his last request should be granted, and spoke a few words of consolation and hope. So many good people of late had perished on the gibbet, that hanging was no longer ignominious. The best and purest had died thus. The jury had been out but a few moments, when a great hubbub arose without, and voices could be heard crying, "'Wait! Wait! Stay the verdict!' A crowd of men rushed into the courtroom with a tall young man, whose weather-beaten face indicated a seafaring life at the head of them. His cruel gray eyes, bold manner, as well as the pistols and cutlass at his belt, 
gave him the appearance of a pirate. "'I am not dead, I trow. Who said I was dead?' he asked. "'Samuel Williams, alive!' cried a score of voices. "'Who said I was murdered?' Sarah Williams rose with a shriek and stared at her husband, as if he had been an apparition, while all the witnesses, including the Reverend Mr. Parris, were covered with confusion. The jury was recalled, and Samuel Williams himself took the stand. He stated, "'I left my wife because I could not live with her, and Mary, I would prefer hanging to existence with her. I went to New York, where Captain Robert Kidd was beating up recruits to sail as a privateer in the adventurer, to protect commerce against the French privateers and sea-robbers. I enlisted, and then, with one hundred and fifty men, Kidd did good service on the American coast, and we went to the Indian Ocean to attack pirates. Our plunder from the pirates made us long to gain more booty, and Kidd became a pirate himself. Armed with cutlass and pistols, we were made to board many vessels, English as well as other nationalities. We went to South America, the West Indies, and finally came to New York, where Captain Kidd, one dark night, landed on Gardner's Island east of Long Island with an enormous treasure of gold, jewels, and precious stones, which he buried in the earth. From there we came to Boston. A pardon had been granted for all, save Kidd, who was yesterday arrested and sent to England to be tried. I heard that a man had been arrested for my murder, and I hastened to save him. Kidd was subsequently tried, condemned, and hung in chains, but his treasure on Gardner's Island has not to this day been found. The romantic story of the returned pirate produced the most profound sensation among the people in the courtroom. The jury had just voted on a verdict of guilty when they were recalled and instructed to give a verdict of acquittal, which they did. Mr. Parris retired in humiliation and disgrace. Cora fainted in her rescued lover's arms, while Mrs. Stevens, falling on her knees, thanked God that the light of heaven at last shone on the path so long dark. Cora's mother came to take her from the liberated prisoner, but he would not give her up, holding her until she regained consciousness, when all went home together, a happy and united family. Almost in a twinkling of an eye, the delusion was dispelled, and many who had been wronged hastened, so far as in them lay to make reparation. The bigoted and fanatical, if we may not say hypocritical, preachers were displaced by God-fearing, righteous ministers who were more liberal, exercising common sense, and possessing humanity as well as godliness, which is ever essential to a good minister. They were liberal even to the player's child as well as to the players themselves. George and Henry Waters both became citizens of Salem, and Charles and Cora were married three months after the acquittal of the former. Their lives were eventful, with as much happiness as is commonly allotted to mortals of earth, and they left nine children, all brought up in the fear of the Lord and lovers of liberty. Witchcraft prosecutions were doomed. 
and shortly after the acquittal of Charles Stevens, in no singular a manner, they altogether ceased to prosecute. The imprisoned witches and wizards were reprieved and set free. Reluctant to yield, the party of superstition were resolved on one conviction. The victim selected was Sarah Datston, a woman eighty years old, who for twenty years had borne the undisputed reputation of a witch. If ever there was a witch in the world, she, it was said, was one. Her trial was conducted at Charleston, in the presence of a great throng. There was more evidence against her than any tried at Salem, but the common mind, disenthralled of the hideous delusion, asserted itself through the jury by a verdict of acquittal. Cotton Mather, who was thoroughly imbued with the delusion to cover his confusion, got up a case of witchcraft in his own parish. He averred the miracles were wrought in Boston. Cotton Mather does not seem to have been bloodthirsty, though he was more anxious to protect his vanity than his parishioners, and his bewitched neophyte, profiting by his cautions, was afflicted by veiled specters. The imposture was promptly exposed to ridicule by one who was designated as a malignant, calumnious, and reproachful man, a coal from hell. It was the uncultured but rational Robert Caliph. Cotton Mather wrote and spoke much on the subject of witchcraft, long after the delusion had vanished. The inexorable indignation of the people of Salem Village drove Paris from the place. Noyes confessed his error and guilt, asked forgiveness, and devoted the remainder of his life to deeds of charity. Sewall, one of the judges, by rising in his pew in the old South meeting-house on a fast day, and reading to the whole congregation a paper in which he bewailed his great offense, recovered public esteem. Stoughton and Cotton Mather never repented. The former lived proud, unsatisfied, and unbeloved. The latter attempted to persuade others and himself that he had not been specifically active in the tragedy. His diary proves that he did not wholly escape the impeachment of conscience, for it is stated that Cotton Mather, who had sought the foundation of faith in tales of wonders himself, had temptations to atheism and to the abandonment of all religion as mere delusion. As when a storm clears away, it leaves the atmosphere clearer. So the common mind of New England became more wise by employing a cautious spirit of search, eliminating error, rejecting superstition as tending toward cowardice and submission. The people cherished religion as a source of courage and a fountain of freedom, and forever after refused to separate belief from reason. The actual fate of Mr. Paris is not certainly known. Some have intimated that he died of a loathsome disease, others that, like Judas, he took his own life. But we are assured that he received his share of earthly torment for his base hypocrisy and cruel wrongs. Most of the people who pretended to be afflicted afterward made confessions admitting their error. Efforts were made by the legislature to make amends for some of the great wrongs done at Salem, but such wrongs can never be righted. The victims of Paris hate, 
and avarice have slept for two hundred years on witch's hill and there await the trump that shall rouse the dead when the just shall be separated from the unjust salem village is peaceful happy and quiet in the gentle murmur of waves the whisper of breezes and the laugh of babbling brooks about the quaint old town all nature seems to rejoice that the age of superstition has passed end of chapter 20 chapter recorded by herehis.com end of the witch of salem by john r musick